do you write an interactive story? That's the question posed in the next session at Guru Live here at BAFTA's Piccadilly headquarters. Three people who can tell us how are BAFTA-nominated game scriptwriters Meg Gianth, who wrote 80 Days, James Swallow from Deus Ex, Mankind Divided, and Rob Yescombe from The Division. We'll also find out what the opportunities are for those with stories to tell in digital form. I'm uh, games journalist Guy Cocker. I write for Stuff magazine. Uh, so let's start, guys. Just tell us a little bit about how you got into uh, video games writing and your experience of it uh, to date. Uh, by accident, pretty much. Uh, I was working as a journalist and I happened to be at a, uh, a games preview and I found a company that were demonstrating a game uh, that was actually based on some material based on the Star Trek franchise that I'd been doing some writing for. And uh, I said, well, this is great stuff, but you guys really don't sort of have the, the tone of the universe quite right. Maybe you could use some help. So they offered, uh, offered me a little bit of money just to come on board and work as a, as a consultant. And I ended up doing a lot of rewrites on the project because they really had no clue about the franchise they were writing for. So just purely by accident, I sort of stumbled into it. Uh, and off the back of that, I suddenly found myself with a credit in the games industry that allowed me to go to other games companies and say, well, you know, if, you know I'm a writer and you need a story and I've done this stuff before, maybe you would be interested in hiring me. You were a novelist prior to this. Uh, and, a, and a games journalist right. and, and a sort of entertainment journalist as well. So I kind of pulled all of those skills together and added that to my, my love of video games. And having seen a lot of great games with great story and a lot of great games with bad story, I felt like I could do something about it and, and add that skill to the industry. And that was pretty much the, the way I kind of kicked open the door and just wandered in through the back entrance. Okay. And how about you, Rob? How did you get your start? Uh, I think a pattern is forming in terms of accidentally falling into stuff. Um, at the time that I got into games, I was writing for Indian cable TV, uh, of all things. <laughs> and I happened to write... I wrote a sitcom that never got produced, but it was shortlisted for a thing called the TAPS Awards, which was like a new writer's award back in the early 2000s. And just by some bizarre... Coincidence, uh, Free Radical Design, uh, who made the Times of the series, uh, were looking for a writer. They happened for some reason to go to this awards body, this very obscure thing. Uh, and I was the only person under 50 that knew what the game was. So I stumbled overnight, uh, much to my, uh, uh, much to probably an error in judgment, but I stumbled overnight from, from a, a show that was, had a budget every week of £250 total into a $30 million game. Uh, which I then duly uh, screwed up. But it was a very powerful lesson in terms of how to not screw up a game. Um, yeah, and that's how... Uh, that's the route to take, you guys. <laughs> so just find a $30 million game Yeah, just stumble it into it, ruin yeah. it, and then you're on the up. So where did you, where did you go from there? Uh, well, I started with that crew. It was interesting, actually, because the, the crew that I, I went with, Free Radical, the, it was, I was hired by uh, three founders, and their initial, initial intention was to keep me on for six weeks, but I ended up staying with that crew for six years. And the reason was is that back when I was working in, in Indian TV, because we had no money, you had to learn to write, to edit, to produce, to direct, to do the whole thing. And having a sort of holistic uh, appreciation for production, uh, I think, is important especially as a, as a writer in games, is you need to understand your impact on production. Um, and that probably is why I got to stay with them so long, is that I was willing to contribute to other areas as much as my, you know, my slowly growing knowledge would allow. Um, and then after that, I, I was uh, creative director at Crytek briefly for a while and then freelance about seven years ago, in which I am a, a gun for hire. So free radical... Became kind of yeah, Free Radical was, was uh, bought out, I think I forget it was 2009 maybe, it was bought mm -hmm. out by, by Crytek and we, we made Crisis 2 together and uh, I was a little bit on Crisis 3 and then went off to do my thing. Right. You, you very much became a sort of face of that, of that game that you didn't mention, yeah, the other thing was, was yeah. Hayes. Yeah. Um, I remember you wrestling one of our, my journalists at the time to the ground in a video. You were very much <laughs> kind of the face of that product. Was that something that helped with your... Wrestling uh, was big at the time, so... <laughs> Still is. Um, so, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> was, was, did that, becoming the face of that kind of, that, that product as well, did that help you with your next project? Uh, it didn't, it didn't. I mean, because it was uh, a failure, it was, to me personally, it was hugely damaging to my career for a long time. Um, but I think if it had been a success, it, it wouldn't have been my contribution that would have made it a success. And I think that in, in having something go badly, and this is hopefully a lesson to anybody who's, who's willing to get into it. At some point, things will go bad. It's inevitable. Um, the question is, what do you do 
if you're going to say, oh, no, 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 it wasn't my fault, it was nothing to do with me, then it will be your fault again next time. And then eventually people will stop hiring you because you're not able to contribute. But if you're willing to say, yeah, probably that was, that was partly my doing, uh, there's a lot of knowledge to be pulled out of that. So it, it took a long time to really, to really figure out how to be good at my job. Mm. Um, because I think, as, and this is often the case with writers or, or anyone creative, I think that the initial reason you go into it isn't because you love the craft. You go into it because you have this flush of enthusiasm and creativity. You think, well, that's going to that's gonna carry me through. But the truth is, if you want to have a, a career that's going to go on uh, for a decent amount of time, it can't just be that. It can't just be the things that you feel passionate about and are willing to, to fight over. You have to be willing to do your maths homework. You have to be willing to look at the geometry of narrative. Otherwise, you, you eventually become useless. We'll, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that um, specifically in a minute. But Meg, tell us about your experience. You were at the sort of more indie end of the... Yeah, the though, I mean, I think the theme of accidental... I'll add unemployment as a way that I ended up in writing in the games industry. Um, <coughs> Uh, I sort of I graduated from university and I, I did English literature, so of course I did what everyone does after that, which was um, I went to film school because I had no idea what else to do. Uh, I didn't want to didn't want to work at a bookshop. Uh, and yeah, and then at film school I kind of convinced my tutors that I I was in, initially interested in television, which already to filmmakers is de classe. And then um, in sort of a final film project, I convinced them to make this sort of web series ARG thing. ARGs were big at that time, so don't judge me. Uh, and as a result of that, I ended up asking for advice from a lot of people in the, in the games industry in the UK at the Indie End, specifically Six to Start, um, who had, uh, in some form or other, some of the people there had made Perplex City or been involved in that, which is a huge ARG that happened around the kind of early 2000s. Um, and I found them incredibly welcoming. And they said, right, well, yeah, come in, we'll give you advice, and then come in and intern at the office for a bit. So I did that, and off the back of that, and the people that I met there, I ended up working in social media at the BBC back when people were like, how much do you have to pay for a Twitter account, and what is that? <laughs> uh, which was great. So mostly my job was going, no, don't, please don't do that to TV producers. And then I continued doing that for games, because I ended up producing games at the BBC, which mostly involved telling TV producers that games were a thing and not just for nerds anymore. Uh, which was mixed success, I would say. I made, I produced some truly execrable games at the BBC, as well. Which is, I think, is a great learning experience because you kind of, um, especially I think when you're early on in your career, it's really hard to say no, and you let yourself kind of overpromise and then underachieve. Mm. Um, and then when you are faced with, oh God, I'm sort of responsible for making this really bad thing. And if I actually look back, I can see many steps where I could have made it maybe not great, but less bad, and I didn't do that. It really does kind of kickstart you if you let it into not making the same mistakes again. I feel like, you know, make new mistakes. That seems like the most <laughs> sensible thing to do. Uh, so then after that point, um, I got made redundant from the BBC when my team moved up to Salford, uh, and I wasn't really uh, going to do that for a one-year contract. Uh, so I kind of ended up in my parents' house and then decided that since I was unemployed and living at home, uh, I would actually go and make a game. And at the time, this free tool called Story Nexus had just been uh, kind of open sourced, which is by Failbetter, who are, uh, they make Fallen London, which is a browser-based game in Sun of the Sea. They're based in Greenwich. Uh, and they, they were running a, a, a competition, actually, to, uh, for that. And um, the three judges were people that I really admired in the games industry, one of whom was Mike Laidlaw, who's the creative director at Bioware, and I thought, well, worst case scenario, I'll make a game, and Mike Laidlaw, one of my games heroes, will see it. Uh, and I ended up winning that uh, competition. For, I, I wrote a game about um, dreamwalking in 18th century Bengal, so I was going for a real mass market <laughs> appeal. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, and then we, anyway, and then the guys at Inkle, which, who are Inkle Studios, who are based in Cambridge, who made 80 Days, saw my game, they were looking for someone to write something kind of historic, something fantastical with a bit of a historical edge. Samsara was that, uh, so I did a writing sample for them, and that's basically how I got into the games industry. But I've kind of continued working in a much more, much more freelance and, and indie space, I think, than, than, than both of, of you, which has been written. Though this year, I've, I, I can't tell you what exactly I'm working on, but I, I've sort of dipped my toes into AAA, which has been a really strange an interesting experience, like with completely different um, timelines and pressures. Um, and yeah, I think it goes back to actually what both of you were saying, that it's you kind of learn the skill on the job and each job almost is completely different. Mm. So it's, uh, it, you know, you, you're kind of constantly learning, which 
I personally really like. But. That's a good jumping off point. Tell us about the, the differences between working in AAA. You were talking about a project that cost $30 million and let's say didn't do as well as you'd hoped. And you've, you've worked on big projects as well, James, and you've worked in the indie space. What are the, what are the challenges of each? Let's start with you, James. What's the challenge of working on something at the scale of Deus Ex? I think the point that Meg makes there is, is, a, is a very, very cogent one. There's a phrase I'm fond of trotting out, which is there are no maps for these territories. Mm. It is very much... It's, you know, if you say to somebody that you're a games writer, every project's going to be slightly different. Everything's going to have a slightly different sort of need. So working on, say, a, a small indie project, you may have something that's very close focused that might be just a question of you writing just dialogue mm. for something, let's say. But whereas working on a large project like uh, a Deus Ex Human Revolution and, and latterly Mankind Divided, that was a project maybe four years. We had eight different writers involved in mm. it working on lots and lots of different elements. So I was involved in working on what was the sweet path, the kind of central core narrative, developing moments in the cutscenes and the, the, the kind of large story arc. But there were guys whose sole job was to write one particular set of, of side quest missions. Somebody else would be working on uh, overheard dialogue. We had one guy whose job was to do nothing but the emails that you would find on people's computers. Mm. And he went a little insane, I think, <laughs> after a while on that. And yet, you know, uh, even that kind of stuff is the sort of thing that you can use to add a sort of sense of, of, of structure and, and nature to the world, you know, just doing those tiny little elements. I, I got involved in writing uh, text for, you know, what the, the stats for a particular kind of gun would be. Mm. All of this is stuff that's involved in the developing of a game. And if, if you're creating something that has 70 or 80 hours of gameplay like Deus Ex does, you, know, you, you will find it has that sort of breadth of narrative. And with that particular title, you're all tying into this central narrative lead, is it, mm -hmm. uh, is it Mary? Mary DeMar's uh, narrative lead on that. Yeah, that's, uh, with, with a title of that sort of size, you need somebody who basically has that role, who is the cheerleader for the story. If it was a TV show, they would be the executive producer. Right. You know, it's the, the person who is, I guess, the, the keeper of the tone would be the best way to describe it. It's the person who has a whole understanding of what this game is about, what the nature of the narrative is, and what's the, you know, the, the beginning, the middle, and the end of it. And that's the person who's riding herd over everybody else. May not necessarily be doing a lot of the writing, mm. but will kind of hold that concept, that key concept in their head. Of course, if you're writing a much smaller game, then you are that person as well as being the actual sort of on-the-ground lead writer. And Rob, you've worked on similar-scale projects, both as a lead and, uh, and tying into bigger projects. Yeah, I've been lucky, lucky enough to work on, on big-scale stuff and some, some smaller indie stuff. And the difference for me is uh, about voice. I think it's one of the biggest challenges on a AAA project is... From a narrative point of view, if you, if you view it as a, as a story, what is the purpose of this story other than to, you know, let's put aside all the mechanical jobs that it has to do. As a piece of art, what's it for? And that's such an important thing to a writer, I think. But it's such an easy thing to just get lost in the swamp of, of a big production. Um, so I, certainly as I, as I get older, you get less sort of taken with the technical things you can achieve in AAA that can be very exciting because you get to do things that you, know, you might never otherwise get to do. But the, the value of why I'm working is more important to me now than it's ever been. And to me, it's not that that can't happen in AAA, but there's, there's a lot of things that contribute to interfering with getting the best experience as a writer in AAA. So at the moment, I think I, I, I favor Indy for that, but that's not to, to preclude mm. other, other ways of doing it. So that's what you're working in at the moment, right? You're working on some VR stuff. And yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky to be working with Tequila Works in Madrid. We're almost in the last quarter of, of making Rhyme, uh, which is a sort of, uh, if you imagine a story that's, we're trying to tell a story that's as rich and, and allegorical as something like Life of Pi, but we're doing the whole thing with no dialogue. So this is why I talk about being able to, to take a, a sort of geometricized view of narrative. Is it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to do if all you have is a passion for story. If you can't view what story is in the, you know, in the, the matrix code version of it, it's very difficult to reappropriate how narrative works in, in order to tell a story in a different way. Um, so that, that's very exciting for me, but I'm also doing a, a VR project with, a, with them that I can't really talk about so much, but I'm in London for the, for the first week of rehearsals. Uh, and... What we're trying to do with that is, uh, you know, maybe I'll, I'll come back to that. Yeah. I'll come back to that when we come back to it later on. But, but certainly being able to uh, steer things, and that's not about, you know, trying to keep other people out of it, but, but having a, a contained collaboration 
helps create a much clearer voice, which I, I find exciting. And I find it exciting to play things like that. What about you, Meg, working in the indie space? Is that yeah, I mean, I would say kind of just following on from, from what you just said, Rob, is um, that uh, the great thing about indie is that you also, because you have that kind of contained team, you can change things. I mean, kind of nine months into working on 80 Days, we decided that you know text wouldn't automatically pop up when you reached a city and that we'd have day-night cycles, which meant that we went back through every single city that we wrote and added like another whole batch of content in, which you just couldn't do if you had all of, you know, for instance, like, uh, you know, if, if every time we invented something, it had to go into art and you had to create a new, ass even one asset. Um, we just had fewer knock-on effects because there were three of us full-time in the game, basically, you know, plus like a freelance composer coming in to do sound. So it's just, it's easier to be like, well, I'll just, I guess we want to create this artistic effect, we'll just work harder to do it. Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, and that just means that we'll sleep less rather than we'll have to spend, find another two million dollars from somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> and that's, I think, a real, uh, a real advantage that, that indie has. It's a lot easier to do that. And I think um, you just, uh, yeah, I think there's just a lot less interference with the kind of creative vision. I mean, I feel like in some ways that whole technology versus art thing, I don't think they are necessarily opposed at all, but I feel like a lot of the times, like, um, bigger projects kind of come from a kind of place of technological innovation, like the purpose of it, the initial impetus is we can do this, like we can make water look really good. And it's really, you have to work so much harder to kind of um, find an artistic core to that as a writer, I think, mm -hmm. than if you're coming from, you know, well, I want to tell a story about this or I want to make players feel this way or something. Right. Well, it's, it's also not necessarily... Uh, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, oh, no. when you, to, yeah. to paint a painting, you need to know how big your, your canvas yeah. is. Yeah. Um, and I think that there's, there's uh, artistic narrative value no matter what the scale of that thing is. But certainly, clarity of vision is easier, I think, with a small mm. team. Well, actually, I think, I think you're entirely right. And I think partly it's also that um, I think in very few fields are you asked to learn how to use like a new tool or a completely, like, you wouldn't go and make a multi-million dollar film with a cinematographer that had never used a red camera before, mm. right? I mean, you're very rarely asked to innovate in terms of craft as well as art. But often in games writing, you're kind of asked to do both, like get to grips with a completely new way of storytelling as well as tell something really worthwhile. Mm. Um, and that's really tough. And, and then you kind of move on to the next project and everything that you've learned, like maybe 10% of it will be relevant mm. that you can take forward to the next thing. Right. But you're like starting from, you know, almost scratch again. Mm. What's the biggest uh, frustration working in video games narrative? For example, you're having to work with you know other departments, and they want different things, and there must be must be clashes between. I didn't realise this was a four day session. <laughs> <laughs> we could go on and on about that. One. Is there a specific example that sticks in your mind of just a, a real big challenge that you've had to? I think if the 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 the, the drum that we we thump, I think every time we do this is is that um, it's it's about embedding writers early in the project. <clears throat> the, I, I could probably, probably look at every problem I've ever come across working in the games industry and track it back to the fact that I was not there early enough. <laughs> because oftentimes you'll find yourself brought in on a project when a lot of the work has already been done. And it's, it's the equivalent of getting the toolkit and only using the spanner. You know, if you bring a writer in too late, mm. there's a whole creative toolkit that writer has which they now cannot apply because you didn't bring them in early enough. And I think that... That is the one that constantly I, I come across, and it you know greatly upsets me. It still but happens. It does, but then of course you know there are other projects where I mean going back to Deus Ex is a great example of a project where uh, narrative had a seat at the table from day one, mm. and I think that's why that game works very strongly in the story on it is completely meshed in with every other element with gameplay, with narrative, with um, with art and, and, and level design. Other projects you'll get um, where that doesn't happen. And it will feel like the story has just been papered on at the end because it actually has been. Mm. Okay. The, here are just a couple of examples of things that are not uncommon that James and I were talking about before. Uh, there was a project that shall remain nameless. Uh, they, they hired me and said, okay, we, we, we think we're ready for a script now. We've shot all the mocap. So what, what do you mean? How can you, so you, you shot it without a script? So yeah, we think we know what it's going to be about. Okay, so they had... I won't say specifically what they had because it might give the product away, but it was 40 minutes of just stuff that they'd spent you know, an enormous amount of money on and then had to sort of reappropriate these pieces to try and make a story, which is so much of what you end up doing when you get hired late, is how do I 
you know, the house has already fallen down. How do I put it back together and make it remind people that it looks kind of like a house? Mm. Another example, a game that was, you know, certainly a, a sizable budget. Uh, they came to me and said, oh, we think we have story problems. I said, okay, what, what stage is the game at? They said, oh, it's finished. So what, what do you want me to do? They said, we want you to take all of the cutscenes, rewrite all of the dialogue to fit the existing animation and, and lip sync, and change the story. It happens a lot. Yeah, but that should really be called lot. something other than writing on this. Well, it is, and this is why I talk about, about being able to take a sort of scientific view of it, is because a lot of the time you're not going to get the creative pleasure out of it that you might want. Um, but, uh, you know, as James says, you know, we, we uh, these kinds of sessions hammer on the same thing. Look, hire us earlier because we mm. can save you money. Mm. That's the thing that matters. If nothing else, hire us earlier. Not only will it be a better experience, will everybody stop fighting about stuff sooner, we can save you money. Mm. There, there is a kind of sense, I think, sometimes with people who work in game design that writers have this kind of bag of magical writer pixie dust which we can sprinkle on your script and miraculously make it not suck. And there's only so much you can polish a turd at the end of the day. You know, if, you, if you're handed something and, and you, know, you, you have to try and reassemble it into some sort of you know, cogent sense, that is an interesting challenge. And you know, uh, Rob and I have both done that. Uh, and I, I found that I've learned something from it. But at the end of the day, you feel like, you're, it's like a, going back to the point I made before, you're not applying the skill set that you have. And at the end of the day, you're not going to get a story that's as good as it could have possibly been if only you'd rung me three months earlier. Yeah. And I think there's also, you know, this is, this is a bit of a highfalutin consideration, but, I mean, when you hire someone creatively to do a creative, to do a creative job, you want them to care about it. Mm. And if your attitude to our discipline is, oh, uh, just, you know, just fix it, will you? <laughs> then you know what? Fuck you. <laughs> we'll, do, we'll, take, we'll take the money and we'll do, we'll do the job, but you're not going to get the best from us. Junk. Not just because of the, 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 the mechanical constraints of putting it under those circumstances, but also you don't, you don't care about what we do. It's hard for us to really fall in love with you and your studio and your game if you can't see the problem you're making. Do you know, but that's something that almost every one of my friends who's a game writer I've spoken to, well, there's a variation of this that you eventually get to, which is, I'm not going to die on this hill. And that's something that I've found as well. Like, you know, there are some projects that you, you love and often they're the ones you're brought into earlier and you're respected and you think, I can actually do a really good job on this and be proud of this. Um, but sometimes, you know, like there comes a point where for your own sanity, you have to be like, right, I'm going to fight, I'm going to do good work, and I'm going to, but these are going to be the parameters of it, but I'm not going to, like, spend sleepless nights, and I'm, I'm not going to, mm -hmm. you know, kill myself trying to make something happen, like, you know, keep knocking my head against this brick wall. If you don't want to come with me into this creative space and actually do good work, you kind of have to take that step back, and it's a real, it's a real shame, but I think it's also actually a really useful skill for writers, especially freelance writers, where quite often you're going into projects and you don't necessarily have you know, long-term relationships with those people that you can kind of, it's easy to go to them and be like, right, I'm having this problem and you know that they'll respect you in that way and not just think you're being a diva. Sometimes the most sensible thing you can do is, as a writer is kind of keep your powder dry and go, right, I'm going to do the best I can here, but I'm going to not kill myself on this so that I have some energy left mm -hmm. for the next project that comes along. Because you're not here to do a job, you're here to have a career, yeah. ideally. Uh, and if you sort of make yourself ill over every single mm. thing that you do, uh, it's not going to last very long. With the greatest respect to what you guys do, you hate me for this question. It sounds like there is an opportunity there. If you, there's a need in the industry for people to come in and maybe, like you say, polish up these turds of games. If that allows you then the opportunity, <laughs> if you make money from that, to go and like they do it in Hollywood all the time, right? Oh yeah, they, I mean, yeah People come in late on and then they, yeah. they work on scripts that are, that are broken, and then that allows them the money and freedom to go and make but their you know own projects. The fact of the matter is, if we're really, you know, a bit callous about it. Almost everybody working in games would make more money doing the same thing in another industry. Mm. The reason why we don't is because we're enthusiasts. Sure. So don't, don't make it like movies. Movies are fine, movies mm. are good, but don't make it like that. Okay. It doesn't have to be. We can do better. That, I think, is part of the reason why we all feel so pissed off about it. Mm. It's because there is that sense that, like, if, if you've just done this one thing, this would be ten times cooler. Mm. And if, if there's no message, if there's no other message I can give to you people today to take away, it's that. It's that if, if you can just have that little extra moment and consider what writing can do for your story, what, for, for your game, what story can do to make your good game great. 
hashtag four months sooner. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I've got to say, I do kind of think that it is slightly changing. I, I think especially in the last you know few years, and I think also the rise of really great stories from in the indie space has actually really affected like the industry across the board. It's no longer okay to just kind of like turn out something. Like now people are like, oh yeah, but we're going to get murdered on the Metacritic. Mm. And yeah, that's a kind of, in some ways, really cynical way to look at it. But if it's going to make people seek out writers earlier and kind of respect them more, then you know, I don't really care what their motivation is. We're in a transitional period. Yeah. The point mm. you're making here is, 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 is dead on. Is I think <laughs> that India has really, really helped mm. because Writing being something that if you do it early on is actually kind of relatively resource cheap. So a lot yeah. of indie games have put good story out there. And so AAA is going, well, maybe we should be doing this. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're in this transitional phase now where people working in the AAA space are going, well, we need a writer. But they still don't all get exactly what that means. Mm -hmm. And they're still not using that tool correctly. Yeah. When they are using it right, it comes out really well. But there are still the times when you get someone going, well, you're a writer, you know, just, just get in there and fix it, like Rob says. You know, you'll get that, that sort of dismissive attitude towards it because you're treated like a, a device. That, you know, you push a button and a great script will come out of the other end. And it needs to be more embedded than that. It needs to be an organic part of the entire process. I think it's, it's tricky because, in truth, the reason why we get hired late is because everybody knows what a good story is. The problem is, is they don't know how to make one. And so, you, you know, if, you, if you're working outside of narrative, you can still instinctively be like, well, wouldn't it be cool if, wouldn't it be cool if? And you can build something that kind of looks like a sort of deformed version of something and might have some cool stuff in it. And it might be enough for you to be excited about long enough to hire someone late enough for it to be a problem. So really, it's not just a matter of us just saying, you know, hire us sooner. There's a responsibility on us, on writers, on anyone working in narrative to be able to communicate why it's different science of narrative that can help you make your game cleaner, better, cheaper, sooner. And what's your biggest frustration, Meg, just to finish that question? Is it just a time issue? I'll be honest, I've had a, like, I've been working mostly in India and I feel insanely lucky. I've had mostly a really, really positive experience. I mean, sometimes I, th I think um, I have had some experiences, again, with a company that, that shan't be named, that is, like, probably, you know, not indie, uh, where... I had this. They, they wanted me to rewrite this game that they already had and add some things to it. And I had to. They kind of. I was there for the whole day. And um, the exec producer would come in and say, "Right, so um, just do a really small rewrite. Don't don't change anything. Don't don't change anything." And then they'd leave. And then the creative director would come in, be like, "So right, just change everything. <laughs> you know, like just do it completely different." And of course, they hated everything that we did because you know it was six six weeks until they wanted it to be shipped and uh, the first draft you know half of the people at the company were like this doesn't go far enough and the other half were like but it, it goes too far you've changed <laughs> you know so um, yeah I think that goes back to not really knowing what you want and not knowing what the writer's role is at that point and kind of not being honest with yourselves as a, as like in terms of as a, as a production about how much time you have and what's really achievable there uh, and I, that was a real lesson for me, though, I think, because I think it was actually my responsibility to say, no, I can't do what you're asking, given this time period. But, you know, again, as a writer, like, you want to work. You kind of want to pay your rent. And so it's really hard to say no, especially when it seems like a really good opportunity. But that's how you end up actually, I think, doing not great work. And that can actually be damaging to your career in the long term. Uh, so it's a kind of hard, it was a hard lesson, but it was a, a useful one. To that, to that point, one of the things that we sometimes talk about inside studios is, and this is not just for narrative, but for everything, is be careful of thinking something's good because you made it. And that's, that's true, I think, of all creative distance. It's very easy to be like, wow, I did something. Therefore, it must be up to standard. Um, believe me, consumers do not agree with you. Uh, and that, that's true, I think, if you, if you find yourself feeling that, yeah, we're building the story. I've never done a story before, but it seems to be going great. Chances are you think it's great because you made it. So be careful, ask. The more people you can bring into that discussion who might be able to set you, uh, set you right, the better. Uh, Meg, you touched upon sort of some of the great creators in this space that are kind of influencing you. Who, who are the kind of most creative and influencing people in the video game space for you guys? Oh, wow. I mean, like, well, for me, because uh, I, I, you know, the work that I do is much more kind of narrative and text focused, really. So, like, I love, you know, classic IF and you know, people like Inkle, who have been doing amazing work, but also Emily Short, who's been doing really exciting work in interactive fiction. But I'm really loving, um, I think right now is a really exciting time for, like, 
kind of um, innovation in terms of like text and form. So last year, like my favorite game, my game of the year was Wheels of Aurelia, which I don't know if any of you've heard of, but you should go check it out if you haven't. It's still in beta um, on, uh, on Steam, but it's this kind of mix between like an interactive, like a, a kind of a driving sim meets like this kind of choose your own adventure game. So you're kind of driving around the Via Aurelia in the 1970s, which is a time of great political unrest in Italy. Um, and you're driving with one hand and you're kind of choosing conversational options with the other. Uh, and it's just this really, like it's two genres that you just wouldn't imagine mixing, but it's this really kind of bold and um, uh, confident mix. And I, I think we're seeing so much of that stuff at the moment as well, like um, like Oxenfree and Firewatch, like all of these are taking, are actually kind of, I think, cross-pollinating into kind of this video game space, stuff from interactive fiction and stuff from other mediums and crafts, and I think that's, that's really exciting. What about you, Rob? Who's, uh, who's doing good work? Who's inspired? This is a weird to say I'm a James Spoiler super fan. It's a little sick of I should have said, obviously, um, 80 Days, The Division, and ASX. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think, as, as she rightly says, it's, there's a lot of really exciting stuff. And what, okay, Sam Barlow's super great. Like, yeah. you know, there's so much great oh, yeah, stuff. Of course. Uh, and I think that what is exciting is that even things that perhaps I'm not necessarily in love with as a piece of writing, the gesture that those projects are making to say, hey, what about this? Mm-hmm. Like uh, The Beginner's Guide, for instance. Yeah. Like, there's something that I, I enjoyed it. I don't think it's the best thing that, the, that he's done. But uh, boy, the, the, the honesty of it is exciting. So The Beginner's Guide. Yeah. Jim? Well, there's a lot of great stuff out there. I mean, yeah, definitely in the indie space, Firewatch is really great. And I, mm. I love Dirty Days as well, if we're going to have a love fest. <laughs> I think that was some great work there. We can't um, even start talking about Deus Ex Human Revolution. We'll just be here for hours. <laughs> uh, this War of Mine, I love I work on that. Um, the Long Dark, I think, is really great. But there's also a lot of stuff, I think, in, in the AAA space as well. Mm. Like, I love what Naughty Dog does. Mm. And, uh, and Bioware as well, you know. And, mm. um, and anything pretty much that will come out of Valve, I'll probably be madly in love with. There is a lot of great writing out there. It's, it's not kind of evenly distributed, but I think we're getting to, to the point where, where the rewards that good writing produce are just turning out great games. People are turned on to the idea now that narrative will, will lift the quality of a game. and it's, uh, mm. it's a great time to be a player, and I think it's a great time to be yeah. a writer. In the industry. I think we, we talked a little bit outside about, uh, especially in, in indie stuff, a lot of what you are selling on the trailer is context. Mm. And the better your context, which really comes from narrative, the easier it is to sell your game until somebody gets hands on with it. That's an interesting point, actually. I was going to ask particularly about Deus Ex, which has these epic trailers that really mm. sell the mood and the, and the sort of characters from the story. Do you feel like they, they do a good job of selling the product, or do they give too much away? Or We've just had this big like, six-minute-long trailer that just dropped yeah. uh, like this week, which I think a lot of that is kind of for people maybe who don't really know what the game's about. To, but it, because it gives you a, a sense not just of the tone of what the, the narrative of the game is, but also about like how the gameplay is going to work. Mm. But I think those those trailers are very much in, aimed at kind of stimulating interest, you know, kind of the, the tickling the squee gland in the fans, you know, trying to get that that, that sort of like your, your interest dials tripped, and then hopefully what you'll get after that is you'll get an experience in the game which will pay that off. Mm. So uh, yeah, I don't have a problem with that. I think as long as you don't kind of give away too much of of the, the back end of what the game's actually about. You know, it's, it's a question of just stimulating that interest but keeping it you know, from climaxing, I mm. guess. And whatever, whatever they did on The Division... <laughs> oh, that was uh, weird. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, I don't know. Uh, the Division, they did a, a phenomenal uh, job on selling that game. Oh, and, yeah, they, so. were, they were great. And I, I can't say I had anything to do with it, but it was, uh, yeah, they, they really understood what the mood was they were mm. going for and the, coming out the gate most of what they were selling was context at least to, to begin with uh, that's my answer to that question so not to, they didn't give too much away in the because in the, as writers you must get frustrated with them kind of well, in, overselling in the division actually there was lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of iteration within the confines of that mood because telling something that you're that is designed to be repeated over and over mm. and over and over and over again is a tricky thing to get right so to some degree, having a sort of mood-based marketing uh, campaign kind of protected us while we were trying to figure out, well, what the hell is this going to be? Mm. Uh, yeah. How? Well, sorry. I was going to say, if I jumped in there, actually, No Man's Sky is a really good example mm. of that. Mm. Is, uh, still people are saying, you know, what's this game actually about? But if you look at the way that the game's been marketed, it is very much about tone and mood. Yeah. 
And a lot of people, I've seen people looking at it going, well, is this a game where I run around and shoot things and blow stuff up? And it's like, if, if you think that's what this game is about, you're probably maybe not going to enjoy it that much. <laughs> yeah. But there are people who have seen the kind of the tone that that game is trying to put across and go, this is going to appeal to me. And I think that is the kind of, that's the best kind of marketing, mm-hmm. is when you put that tone out there and go, do you think this is cool? Yeah. Then come on in and have a go. How, um, how should people um, in the audience, if they're looking to get into games writing, what's the right approach for them to make, maybe at the AAA end and at the indie, indie end, uh, Meg, is there, is there a way that people can approach someone like you to, to help out and to, and to get involved in smaller projects? I mean, I would say actually the best thing you can do if you want to write games is to write games. Like There's a multitude of free tools out there for kind of almost, like a, many levels of, um, of skill. Like You don't have to wrangle with Unity to make a game now. You know, there's Twine, there's, there's uh, Ink is now, which is the, the scripting language, the engine behind uh, 80 Days and Sorcery and all of that. It's open source. Uh, you know, there's Choice Script, there's Story Nexus. Uh, there's lots of ways in which you can kind of you go out and make your own thing. And I think that's how, I mean, I've done so many of these like panels about like how to make your first game. And every time we ask the audience, like, so how many of you want to write a game? And everyone raises their hand. And how many of you have made a game? And it's about 10 people. And I know all those 10 people because they're all my colleagues in the games industry. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's the only difference, you know. Is that the same in the AAA space? Do you need a calling card? That's... I think it's, it, it's, it's changed a lot, certainly since, since I came in. I don't know the same for you. Like there, was, there, was, there was once upon a time, and I, as I was saying earlier, I felt valid, but there was once a very low bar for entry. Now the bar is very high. Mm. But really, I, I understand why people might not make their own games because yeah. it's hard enough to learn and figure out how to write a story and make it good, but then you've got to do all the rest of it. And God, that seems like a pain in the ass, right? But number one, that is obviously the smartest thing you can do because it means that you can actually uh, express yourself in this product unabashed. However, um, towards the AAA end, really, you know, especially if, you, if you're a consultant like James and I, a lot of what you're doing is salesmanship. And salesmanship is really about saying, is listening to what the problem is before you try and offer the solution. And it can be hard to get into a place where people are willing to tell you what that problem is, but that really is the thing that, I mean, you know, eventually you get to a place where we'll come to you, but most of it is, is saying, well, can you describe the problem you're having? Because maybe I can solve it. Mm. James, you started in other forms of writing and journalism and, and, uh, and, and um, novels, but so that's, a, that's an approach that Rihanna Pratchett used as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a writer, just write. It doesn't even need to be uh, a game, you know, if, if you... If you want to be a writer, you just have to write because that's the fundamental tool set. That's, that's the muscle that you're exercising. So if you want to go to a company and say, you know, hire me to write something, have something that you can show them, whether mm. that is, you know, if you've built a little twine game, if you've written a short story, you've done a short film or a script or a play, whatever the hell it is, have a thing that, that you can put out in front of somebody and say, this, here's a completed job of work that I've done that demonstrates my ability. That's... If you don't have that, you shouldn't even be thinking about it. That's the, the, the very most basic level, that's what you need to have. For sure, and yeah, just to, to reiterate that, no one's going to give you a break until you've given yourself a break. You have to do something, otherwise no one's going to help you. I mean, I think, yeah, that's exact. Like, I think I spend a lot of time kind of wait, asking for permission to do things or like waiting for someone to tell me, oh, here, do this, well, I'll give you this to do this. And actually, the best thing that I ever do is just go, right, I've got some time. I might, I might as well do it on my own. I don't need to wait for somebody to say, right, here you go. Here's, here's some money. Here's some time. Here's an idea. Just go off and do it yourself. I'm um, keen to get some questions from the audience. Does anyone have a question? Uh, we've got a mic that's roaming around. It might help our panelists as well, if you can just introduce yourself and let us know if you're working on anything at the moment. Sorry. Um, yeah, we'll go to, <coughs> go to this person here. How would you write dialogue for um, main characters in role-playing games like Mass Effect and Fallout's based on um, their choices, like either they play as a good guy or a bad guy? I suppose Jamie, you're the best. That's a lot of writing. <laughs> That's pretty much it, really. It's, you, know, you can never... It's like, it ties back into what I just said before. Uh, mm-hmm. you, can, you can never put in a response that's going to fit absolutely everything. You know, so you've got to already, immediately you've got to boil it down into kind of like, is it going to be good or bad? And of course, if you start boiling it down into something that's literally as black and white as that, you start to peel away an interesting game experience because you might not want to be the black hat or the white hat. You might want to be a kind of guy who's in the shades of grey and then it's like, well, do we have to do three or four or five or six or seven or ten different responses? 
to every different thing that we're doing. So usually the answer is write a lot of stuff. But the, the skill of it is to try and write stuff that will apply to both characters. And that involves understanding the narrative and understanding the character that you're trying to create and hopefully how those two mesh. You well, said you were so a big fan of Bioware. Is that I, the reason why? Oh, yeah, why? no. I, I totally am, but I actually think like that point that you made earlier, James, about that it's, it's still kind of versions of Adam Jensen. No matter, you know, you're, the player is taking it in these directions, but it's still Adam Jensen at the core, and I think that's one of the weird fallacies we have. We think if it's a choice-based game, it's, oh, you get to do whatever you want, or it's entirely your character, but it isn't. You are fundamental. You are like allowing players. You're giving them kind of three options and tricking them into thinking that it's all of them. Mm. And you are sub- circumscribing a character. Um, you know, and there are things like for eighty days. There's things that Passepartout just doesn't do. Like Passepartout is never overtly racist. It's just, like I'm sure, like in the real eighteenth century, a character like him would probably be really racist. But we just like I don't. We don't. Didn't even feel like we had to apologize for kind of not giving you the opportunity to do something. And I think that's something that the Bioware games do really well. I mean, occasionally you still have that kind of the extremes. But I think you can kind of see if you go through the Mass Effect games and even the Dragon Age games, they're trying to move away from just the like the the single line of good and evil. Uh, um, but that's really hard to do, kind of mechanically in a game as well, because so often, like you end up um, like one of the I think the difficulties there is as you play your game, it sort of encourages you to go either full Paragon or full Renegade because mm-hmm. you get the more fun options that way. Whereas if you kind of try and play a more nuanced character, you end up in this sort of neutral space. Um, but you know, it's, it's I think it's again it, it goes back to one of those uh, finding the balance between kind of mechanics and narrative and how do you do that. Um, while also giving the player a kind of sense of, of kind of uh, personal ownership over, over, like, you know, people, like, I always talk about my shepherd, and I think that's really powerful. But I think it covers a multitude of sins. You don't have to give people every single choice. As long as you're giving them constant choices and smaller ones, uh, they still feel as much of a sense of ownership as, as to something that has no, mecha- like, wider mechanical effect, uh, but just kind of like how, a, a more emotional kind of response, I think. Mm. What, what I hate seeing is in games where you have that choice where it's like kind of like, would you like to rescue this kitten or right. eat a baby? Right. You know? Yeah, and that, it, and that it's, normal human choice that we all face every day. What kind of baby? <laughs> <laughs> Tasty baby, obviously. In Bioshock, you know, the, right. that, that whole choice where you get at the beginning where it's like, you know, you're put in front of an eight-year-old mm-hmm. girl. Would you like to put a bullet in this young right. girl's face? Murder uh, her or, you know, like, yeah. And, and you can see in a purely mechanical sort of level, well, this is what you'll get if you do this. Right. This is a reward level. But I was offended that the game would actually think I would do that. Right. And th- that affected the entire way I played the game. And yet, if that had been perhaps put in more of a sense of nuance, I might have been able to come to that decision in a different way. But it was so sort of blunt. Yeah. Mm. And to me, that again, talking about popping the narrative bubble, that was a moment for me where that choice drew me out of the game. And that's the holy grail of, of game narrative is keep the player mm. in that headspace all the way through. Make them think that, that, that you're that shepherd. Mm-hmm. Not that, oh, wait a minute, I'm playing a game. And suddenly yeah. you're game thinking, you're out of the game, and you lose that beautiful moment. But again, I think the reason that you have that... So even say... So I really love, like, Telltale, Telltale's games. But again, because of the kind of constraints of narrative, quite often the big choice at the end of, say, a chapter is, do I rescue this person or this person? So it's not, do I kill someone? Yeah. But even that, you know, and even that is so huge as a choice. Like, and I, I think it, it really works in the Walking Dead series because it's about this kind of, you know, high stakes zombie apocalypse world. But in the real world, if you're making a, a game about, I don't know, like almost anything else, I, you know, you're usually not like in the in the real world. You're not usually choosing between saving one of your friends or another one, and it sort of limits the kind of stories you can tell mm-hmm. if those if that's your big narrative choice rather than do I sit here or do I go to class today or do I sleep in. And, you know, that might not seem on the surface really interesting, but I think that's, those are the decisions that make character mm-hmm. and that, mm-hmm. what, you know, uh, in almost any other medium, I think. I think it's been a while since I've played it, but I, in The Walking Dead, wasn't there a mechanic where you could give candy bars to people yeah. but it didn't do anything? Think. Is that right? I, like it, it didn't I, have a mechanical I think effect. someone, like people might get slightly more annoyed at you, like if you didn't, but there was no, yeah, you didn't yeah, have a That's, that's the thing, it's feeling that you, ha- you have authorship over the story even right. before you're really making important choices. Yeah. And actually it makes those choices much more grounded mm-hmm. because you're invested in those people because you made the investment, even though the investment was not a mechanical requirement. 
Right, and you have your own story in your head as to mm. why you did that and why you made those choices, and you don't really need the game to be like, so why did you do that, and offer you three options for why you did it, because people are complicated, and probably when, when you as a, as a writer kind of try and go, why, what, what were the motivations behind this? You're going to get it wrong. Like, or even if you get it wrong for 5% of people, you've popped that narrative immersion bubble. Mm. So it's much better to actually kind of trust your player, I think, and like, let them have some space you know, that you don't intrude upon as a writer. Mm. Uh, thanks very much. Hopefully that answers your question. Oh, um, I also wanted to know if... Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just a small thing. I wanted yeah. to know if you sometimes made choices where, you know, all these terrible things happened and uh, you made the player feel bad about making that choice. Do you sometimes make those moves on purpose? Yeah, there are times when you're bad and you should feel bad about being bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, I guess if the... It, it's difficult. If, if, this, if the story railroads you into making a bad choice and doesn't give you another option, I think that's poor design. So uh, Spec Ops The Line, I think, which is a great game that does a lot of really interesting things, has a very key moment in it where it says, do this thing, and you do something, and, and it has a terrible, terrible effect, which, and it's a major sort of like narrative fulcrum of the story, but it doesn't give you the option to do anything else. See, I actually think it does, and the other, the other thing that it gives you the option to do is not play. And I think that's kind of interesting. I, I think that I, see, I, yes, it's, yes, it's only I it's think, a one-trick pony. I think <laughs> there's, there's value to be had in staying inside the game, but there's also value to be had in viewing the game from outside. Mm. And I think in the case of Spec Ops, um, it's not you know the bubble is popped, mm. but you get to look at the game from the outside. Mm. That's where its value is. So it's not that it needs to be one way or the other. It's, I mean, it's, it comes down to like when we were talking earlier about what what is a game story, what is a game. All these things are so amorphous. We can't say what it should or shouldn't be. It's a matter of when you are making your work of art, which is what I hope it is, you have a reason to make it and that that choice supports your reason for making it. Whether or not that pops the bubble or not, what matters is why you as an artist are making this work. Okay, yeah, thank I feel you. like that's the answer to almost any question anyone can ask. Yeah, it's your fault. <laughs> there was a hand that shot up really quickly, like there. I think this young lady here, just on the sort of sixth row. Hi, I just was wondering, uh, talking about, uh, you were talking about how if writers were involved earlier, that would be the ideal situation. So, what would be the best kind of writing structure and the writing process that you feel would kind of be, you know, the best result that you could get? And how, has that is that different to how? You went, your writing process is maybe in, not in an ideal situation. Well, I think if you're talking about just hiring con- contractors, um, you don't necessarily need to hire us at the beginning and keep us on all the way. It might be that if you're nervous, you know, it could be a budgetary consideration. But the sooner you hire someone, if you're saying, okay, we have an idea for a game, we have an idea that this might be the kind of experience we want to do, hire us then. Because we can help you shape that into something that might actually be easier for you to make be more purposeful in its intention. And then you know what? Maybe we'll disappear for four months while you figure it out. But so long as we're there at the beginning to help that initial steer, and then hopefully you like us enough to bring us back, that's going to help us help you. What he said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, and sorry if I have a quick follow-up yeah. question. In terms of like a, a skeleton structure that you might have as a writer, um, do you tend to have a kind of a, a basic skeleton that you'll go through and then you'll kind of develop it and you'll add on like an extra tail or another few limbs to the story as it goes along or what? Totally depends. Okay. Mm-hmm. Depends entirely on you and your product. Yeah. <laughs> um, God forbid that there would be a rule set. There may be a creative process you go through to say, okay, we do research, outline, structure, and then uh, into, into whatever form this quote-unquote script may take. But uh, it... What matters is that you understand how stories work in order for you to figure out what that process is. It is an equation that must be resolved almost every project. Mm-hmm. So it's really about speaking the language of narrative and then trying to mm-hmm. translate it for your product. Hi, uh, um, I'm Joshua Mallet, and I worked as a uh, game level designer at uh, Linehead Studios. Um, so I've got a question. Um, so... You guys spoke about choices and diverging paths. Um, so how do you create um, attachments to the main characters? For example, in Mass Effect, um, the, final, the final stage, um, it kind of turned out your choices didn't really matter, and that was the argument um, when you finished the game. They had three choices which were essentially the same and resulted in the same kind of thing. How do you create attachments to three choices that matter? How would you do about that? So... Uh, 
the thing about the Mass Effect ending thing, which I do, think... Do we need to be aware of spoilers? Oh, no, 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 so I'm not even going to get into spoilers. <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing is that I actually think Mass Effect does an excellent job of, of creating attachment to your shepherd all the way through. The real problem with that is that they, it was impossible for them to kind of give the player what they wanted. It's this huge epic story, and there's so many choices made over, like... I mean, you know, my Shepard and I were together for 10 years over the course of three Mass Effect games. There's no ending that could be so nuanced that it would live up to that. And in a way, I think that was the problem, and that's what we kind of need to look past as, as writers and as audiences, this idea that at the end of this hugely choice-driven, like, three-part series, you'll have, you'll have, like, any ending that's going to feel great. Like, it's actually it's the journey, not the destination, and I actually don't think the ending of Mass Effect like actually ruins my experience. To be honest, personally, I haven't actually played the ending. Like my Mass Effect is co is paused right before the last mission, so that it will never be over for me because that's <laughs> who I am. But it like but I still love that series, and I don't yeah. feel like it's broken at all. I mean, I, in some ways, I, I feel like I I wish they could have like. I don't know, like, set up expectations so that it felt like the ending wasn't the most important thing about it, because it's not. It's a great series. Oh, yeah, it's about um, the re relationships, I guess, you make with the other characters. Right, absolutely. Uh, and, but, the, but it's also about how to kind of set those expectations, because I think we went into it with these expectations, like it was going to be this three-part blockbuster film that was going to have this big, huge, like, epic, satisfying ending. And it's hard to write one of those, much less a thousand of those, for you know ten thousand different playthroughs. Um, and I think we kind of have to get get rid of that idea that we can have this epic blockbuster filmic thing. I mean, I think we can do that with The Last of Us, which is super linear. Mm. But if you're writing like branching narrative, that's just not a model that I, th I think that's just a really hard model to right. to make work. You're going to pull your shirt off and fight now. <laughs> I think actually you you may have actually kind of almost answered your own question there because you talked about. The relationships. Yeah, yeah. That is that. Is, is that if, if you want to create something that makes you empathise with the character, th th you can't unless you create a very linear character and you define all of that character's nuances. You can't tell a character's story unless you reflect it off of the other characters. Okay. So if you look at like Gordon Freeman's a really good example of that is because he doesn't have any dialogue in the game. Everything you learn about Freeman through the, the Half-Life games comes from the way that other people treat him. So if you look at Mass Effect, you can. What makes your shepherd your shepherd is the relationship that you have generated with all of the other characters around that constellation of relationships. And that is the thing I think that writers can say, you know, we can create the satellite relationships around the main character and hopefully make them interesting enough and the responses interesting enough that you will build that character story in your head. Okay. By the way, that in case anyone didn't pay attention to that, that might be the most important thing any of us have said today. Yeah, and this is also, like, all of, I think this is uh, last GDC, that was, I think, the crux of almost every single narrative talk is kind of around how we can make like non-player characters and the worlds in which we are kind of playing in much more real. Uh, I think some of those talks are going to be free on the GDC vault. You should look them up. Mm, um, if that's, yeah. Can, yeah. that's good. Uh, thanks for your question, and sorry to hear about Lionhead. You uh, oh, made yeah, some amazing yeah, games. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, is, there, is there another microphone on this side? Or? Yeah, perfect. Hey. Hi. Uh, is on? Yeah. Uh, my name's Tony. I'm a script writing student in the University of Worcester. And uh, my question is, um, if all games exist on this continuum between kind of a straight linear narrative and a very interactive narrative, um, what are the specific tools uh, that exist for each end of the spectrum? Um, and I mean that both in kind of like... Uh, narrative devices, but also what physical tools would you use, like what software? Oh, God. Um, it's interesting, actually, because different, different studios use different tools. And they, Ubisoft have their... Uh, I forget their name, but now... Oasis. Is it Oasis? Okay. Yeah, Oasis is, is their in-house tool. Um, different, some studios will just be straight up Final Draft. Others will use... Uh, is it Artificy? Artificy, yeah. Artificy, yeah. It's pretty good, too. Um, I don't think, again, it's tricky because, um, because there isn't a uh, set concrete format for what that game might be. There's not, it's hard to have a set concrete format for what software you should use. Um, 
I realise I've answered the question by saying, I don't know. <laughs> Get used to writing your scripts in Excel documents, if you that that's, too. Yeah. 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 that's not a fun way to do it. But okay. no, it's, Going back to what that, that phrase I traded out earlier about no maps for these territories, it's the same thing. It applies what kind of software, what kind of format you have for a script is whatever works. It's not like if you want to, say, do like a stage play or a sitcom, right? You can, go, you can go and buy a book right now that says this is how to lay out a sitcom script. There isn't anything like that for video games. There's a lot of suggestions, but there's no one defined model because it is such a broad church, because there is so many different kinds of narrative that are needed. What you would be writing for one thing will be a radio play, and then for something else you'll be writing a movie script, and then for something else you'll just be writing a block of prose. Each one of those has a place inside a video game. So there isn't necessarily one particular format you can hold to. So I will totally say, do check out Inky, especially if you're doing the slightly more interactive end. Just I have nothing to do with it, which is why I can sort of like, like you know, sing its praises. Um, it's just so like lightweight. I've, it, it's incredibly transparent. It doesn't kind of be, it, you're not beholden to any particular shape or structure, unlike a lot of other tools. Um, and if you have like any sort of slightly coding mindset, it's really easy to kind of use it to, to create whatever shape or thing you want. So it might be worth looking into. Did you catch that? Sorry, I didn't catch that, was it? It's called Ink. Uh, it's Inkle Studios. It's Ink 2. It's, okay. They've just open sourced it, so it's all out on their website if you so go to inklestudios.com. Any narrative devices that you'd recommend using for, like, say, the interactive end? I mean, like, um, specific, uh, almost like narrative mechanics. We could probably come up with a list of ones that you know maybe you shouldn't use. Yeah, like you know, please no more amnesia stories, yeah. where, where the hero wakes up and has like had all this stuff taken away from him, doesn't remember who yeah. he is. No, that is the kind of thing I meant. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Flashbacks are really hard to do in a game. You know, that's a that, that's a that's a technique that film mm. can do, can t film and television can do really well. In a game, it's hard because, if, especially if, if it's a, maybe if it maybe just purely for storytelling, you can use a flashback. But if you want to use it like in the context of the game, it's difficult because how do you show a flashback to something that you might have done in a completely different way? I don't think we've yeah, got yeah, the technology yeah. to be able to do that yeah. yet. Yeah. And flash forwards, obviously, for the same reason. Mm. Uh, oh God, I feel, I feel like somewhere in my brain is a huge catalogue of these. But um... cutaways, that's another one. It's, it, if, you, if you want, if you want to cut away from yeah. your hero. That's a difficult thing to do because if you, you know most games are from the point of view of one character and they're constantly with them. So if you want to go, meanwhile at the bad guy's headquarters, it's like, well, you know, some games can do that. I think uh, the Devil May Cry did that. DMC did that. I remember at the beginning that starts with a whole cutaway with the bad guy going, "Here is my evil plan. This is what I'm going to do," mm. and then you cut away to the the hero doing their thing. It's difficult to sort of balance it. Right, yeah. This is maybe a broader idea, but something that I um, so. It's been a while since, I, since I've been in a, into a studio early on in this process, but uh, sitting down with the group that intend to be contributors to the story, and as we're building the ideas that we think <laughs> might be parts of it, uh, putting those up on the whiteboard, spending a good week or so really getting that list big and strong, and at the end of the week saying, we're not going to do any of those. This is now the no-go list, because all the stuff that you can come up with is rubbish. <laughs> All the stuff that's hard to come up with, that challenges you to come up with, it's going to challenge the player to experience. Um, it's very easy, especially if, you, if you're a small team or an indie, it's very easy to, uh, to validate yourself. And don't get me wrong, it's, there's a difficult balance to be struck because to some degree you do want to, want to have a sense of authorship over the, the product. You want to feel that it has a voice. But it's very easy to do your first thought stuff. And that's not just true of games, it's true of screenwriting in general. Uh, you, know, if you, you know when you're doing something tropey and there is a creative and social responsibility on you to not do that. Hopefully that helps. Uh, I think we've got time for a couple more questions. Um, yes, this lady on the side. Um, hi there. Uh, do you have, um, how, basically, how much technological know-how do you think a games writer needs? You need to have, you don't need to be a programmer, mm -hmm. but you need to understand, at least on a broad sense, the way a game is built. So have an understanding of what other people's jobs are. I mean, that, I think that's true of anybody writing in any medium, mm -hmm. let's be honest. You know, if you're going to write a movie script, you should understand how a camera works. So I think if, if you have a, an idea of how a game is, is put together 
and an idea of what the other people, most importantly, what their creative energy, what direction that will be coming at you from. And then you can, you know, you can have a conversation with them and say, well, you know, is it realistic for me to write a cutscene where this particular thing happens? And if they say no, you have an understanding of why they say no. So, so not the technical know-how, but just spending time with the team. Because yeah. I always imagine you doing it because the, the makes of Deus Ex are in America. Montreal. Montreal, sorry, Canada. So, so you're, I imagine you're doing it from afar, but you, you actually go in and spend time. Yeah, it's a, bit, it's a bit of a mix. Sort of like sometimes sitting at home, sometimes over there in the right, studio. Right. But it, I, I always say, whenever I work on any games project, one of the first things I do is I say to the, the, the lead I'm working with is, can I please go and talk to the art guys and the level designers? And can I have a conversation with uh, you know, the guys who are programming the AI just so I have an, an idea, I open, open that line of communication so you can go to them later on and go, is it okay for me to do this? How's, how can I help you do your job better? And how can you help me do mine better? Have that, have that level of sort of to and fro. It's definitely an attitude thing. If you're going in and you're afraid that you don't have the knowledge, that's okay. Uh, as long as you're willing to have people say no to you and to not really understand yet. Um, and the more you do it, the more you'll understand that maybe you can say, well, hey, how about this instead? You know, it's, it's, a, it's a slow process to pick up. But uh, as long as you go in with, it, with an open mind of being refused things that you think make sense, uh, you'll get there faster. And I think it's also just understanding that some of that technological stuff is part of your craft as a writer that you're kind of going into and learning. Um, and that's, I think, the difference between like, you know, writing a novel and writing a game. Obviously, like, there is no one such thing as a game, which is kind of you know, the crux of what we've been saying here. But if you don't understand the kind of technological demands and opportunities of the particular project that you're working on, you're not going to be able to kind of write the best possible story to fit the shape of the thing that you're going to be making. Uh, so I think it's, yeah, I think it varies from project to project. And for some things, if you're doing something that has kind of more structural narrative stuff going on, um, where you have to be a little bit more into the kind of mechanics of it, you might have to learn more as you go. I mean, I think probably every single thing that I've worked on, like the first few weeks or the first few months even, have also been a, a process of like understanding the kind of technical demands and limitations. Um, and, the, you know, and the best kind of writers and studios will factor that into how you work. Uh, I think you answered a question before talking about how to make a game uh, more immersive and one of the answers was how to, um, was to make relationships. Um, from a writer's perspective, I want to know um, from your experience, what's the difference between a relationship that the player cares about and, and uh, one that uh, the player doesn't really care about? For example, if you play uh, an FPS, you know, you have a relationship uh, with the people with you, but maybe when they die, you, you, don't, uh, you don't really care. You're not immersed into that. Um, I remember one thing that Portal did was that they used to have this companion cube mm -hmm. and uh, used to take it all the way with you. And then when you killed it off, it kind of got this emotional reaction. So I think that was one way, but is there any other way to make the, a player care about the relationship other than killing, killing them off? <laughs> Well, you know, the, the portal's a really good example, right? That, that, that moment, how many people here have played it? Everybody here played it? That's pretty much yeah. everybody, right? <laughs> that moment where, you know, you take it over and you put it in the furnace and GLaDOS says to you, you did it faster than anyone else. Right. <laughs> and, you, and you feel like, oh, I feel I'm a complete shit, right? <laughs> and that's a great moment because you feel, it makes you feel guilty and you immediately have that visceral reaction. And that's, the cube didn't do anything. All of that was in the writing. All of that is just, that, that's just a terrific piece of writing right there that's just made you have that immediate visceral reaction. And when you go on from the game past that point, whether you like it or not, you've forged a relationship with that inanimate object. So if you can do that with a companion cube, you can do that with a guy who's your buddy See, in a FPS. That's exactly what I think, though. I think the fact that we keep talking about the companion cube, which is a great piece of writing, and it does really work, and all of those things, but I think it's also a damning indictment of the nature of like, companion characters and NPCs yeah. in games. Yeah, exactly, that, yeah. like, it's the companion cube that we think of when we're like, oh, when did I feel something when a, when a person died in a game? Oh, it was the inanimate cube thing. Well, I, I think maybe there's, there's a, a slightly... Uh, more highfalutin answer to it, which is that why do you care about relationships in life? Who's your best friend? What's your name, my friend? Hassan. Hassan. What's the name of your best friend? Uh, Yusuf. Yusuf. What's so great about Yusuf? Is he here? <laughs> <laughs> we will be sending this to him later. Yeah. Just yeah. So you know. well, so how, how many years have you known Yusuf? Uh, since high school. Okay. Um, many years. 
What did he do for you in high school? In what way did he change you as a person? I, th I think we could relate to each other and we had good times. Okay, so you had something in common. Yeah. What was that? Uh, we both, well, there's quite a few things, but I guess we both liked Star Wars, I guess. That's okay. <laughs> Why do you think you both liked Star Wars? And don't just say because it was cool. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Why did you in here? Why did you like it? Oh, it's, maybe I could talk a while about it, but uh, I guess it was just such an interesting universe. Uh, You're saying it was cool. Come on, tell me the truth. Why do you care about it? What was happening to you when you found it? Sorry? What was happening to you when you found that universe? I felt I could relate to it, maybe. Um, I, it, it told a story. Um, it gave a message. So you and, you and Yusuf, you found that you could relate to this universe because this is, this is, I mean, Star Wars is like the classic hero's journey. Yeah. Maybe that's something you wanted in your life, something that was missing that maybe you both knew was missing in each other. Is that true to say? <laughs> uh, possibly. Um, yeah, you could say that uh, in Star Wars, the narrative was about uh, people trying to make a living for themselves, uh, trying to uh, overthrow the empire, trying to fight the difficulties. Um, I guess everybody has difficulties in life, um, and it's just about their experiences, but I think I'm digressing. <laughs> well, no, no I, don't, I don't think you are. I think that, that the truth is, is that so much of what you're doing in, in writing, I mean, we talked about all the mechanical stuff, the, the boring business stuff, and all the, all the oh, poor us, boo-hoo, it's hard, we get hired, like, who cares? Hmm. But really, all we're trying to do is represent you and Yusuf, man. That's, where, that's the well that you're going to. If you want to know how to describe it, look within. Hmm. Uh, Thank you. Sorry to cut this short. You, I would encourage you guys to come and uh, corral these guys at the bar afterwards and continue that, that discussion, especially around Star sure. Wars. Um, <laughs> sorry, we have to draw Thanks to so a close, much. but uh, please join me in uh, thanking our panellists. Thanks to Meg, James and Rob for sharing their craft at Guru Live. If you want to hear more about the creative process behind BAFTA winners, the filmmakers behind Brooklyn and Thebe joined Guru Live Film Day to discuss their work. To hear more, listen to the storytellers on SoundCloud or at bafta.org forward slash guru.